Hey everybody, Mike and Tim here, post July 4th, Tim had uh, a big, big family vacation in Southern California. Hit the Disney. Hit the Disney. Uh, right? You did Disneyland? Yep. How was that? It was amazing. Two days at Disney and one day at California Adventure. And it was amazing? It really I mean, was. Is that... Are you... Okay. Just for the record, if you're new to the podcast, Tim Stafford doesn't show up like big emotions necessarily. <laughs> so for him to use the word amazing it was really to fun. describe Disneyland? It was crowded. It was warm. And we had a blast. Our our littlest Mazzy is was literally like, I don't know, like a quarter of an inch taller than the. You can't ride this ride sign for like the roller coasters, so oh, she got man, to ride. So in. Oh man, it was, it was pretty fun. Yeah. Okay. When you when you when you go with your kids and your kids are loving life. Oh yeah. I don't know if I would have done fun. two days at Disney, just as an adult. Yeah. But with the kids, it was. It was a lot of fun, and that Star Wars, the big Star Wars ride, the I know that I know. ride's you... insane. Okay, you told me. <laughs> I'm on it. I can't believe it. I was just so surprised. Dang, the whole Star Wars land, I hadn't been able to see it yet, and that was I could live there. Our friend Jana, um, who uh, I know from way back, wrote in and said. I have a song on my running playlist that makes me think of Tim, and I wonder if anyone else has ever mentioned it. At the end of Tom Petty's Running Down a Dream, which is a great song, he makes this lazy announcement about turning the record over. It used to annoy me, but then Tim's thank you, thank you, thank you was added to the end of your podcast. I find myself smiling and praying for you all. Anyhow, keep up the great work. So, I like that. Yep, I mean, and how would you would you can you have some Tom Petty vibes? Oh yeah, I love Tom Petty. I think Tom Petty is like our Beatles. Mm, Hot takes. That's a very, that's a very strong statement. I know. After Disneyland, you went to Big Bear. Yep. And uh, what was that like? Big Bear Lake, Big Bear Village. Yeah, what some of our the... best friends are born and raised in Big Bear, and they moved to Auburn with us. When we hold moved on a second, here. I. I must have lost that invitation. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it's in my spam folder. You know, when it came back, it bounced back. (laughs) (laughs) Weirdly, though, it said return to sender, so I'm not sure what message you're sending. Oh, come on now. (laughs) So was that, did you guys go out in the lake? I mean, what is Big Bear like 4th of July? It's nuts. We've actually, when we lived in Southern California, we went up there all the time, and Ah. our band used to play there on 4th. So it was a lot of fun. It's really crowded, but... They, yeah. um, they, their parents are living in a house that's on the lake that they inherited. Oh, and so we were just in the house and we rented a pontoon boat one day. And oh, come spent on, the whole day on the lake. The water is Man, like if... frigid. Yeah, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, but yeah, complicated never... now. Ever since the previous president and the way in which the flag was used. I have like I have very mixed emotions when I see the American flag, and they're mm. not entirely positive. Mm. So this was an interesting fourth where I was kind of wrestling with that, and they, you know, they have a lot of t-shirt shops and stuff up there that sell shirts that have like the United States on them and say like "F off, we're full," and just like this really angry American. Mm. And I was like asking my friend, I was like, "Why do you think that patriotism has become so tied to?" like hate and anger 
Because mm. it used to be kind of like, this was the land of the free, the home of the brave. This is where you can come for the American dream and anyone can achieve anything here no matter where you're from. And now it's just yeah. like these really angry, hateful mm. shirts and stickers and flags. And just, I don't know. So the holiday in general is kind of a mixed bag, but yeah, family time is fun. Oh, I love it. Good for you, man. And you're you're super chipper today. I can feel it. Heck yeah. I'm ready to take on the world. <laughs> hey world, check me out. Oh, uh, let's talk about therapy. Let's talk about let's therapy. Do <laughs> two middle-aged white men going to therapy. <laughs> so therapy is absolutely kicking my ASS Ooh. all over the place. Um I don't know, man. I I I, I know you have to be at a certain place to receive the gift of therapy, but I wish I would have known some of this sooner. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you and your lovely bride are together. Mm -hmm. And is it is it me or does she seem the therapist seem to be focusing a lot on you? And, no, she's um, she man, she's she's an equal. Yeah, I've had. I didn't realize how bad some of my previous therapists were that I would try out until mm. I've had her. She's just remarkable. Like oh, she, I love that. It's so good. And she's just cutting so to the good. core for both of us on years and years. And I mean, just un untouched stuff from 40 years of life that yeah. has never been dealt with or even talked about in certain ways. Cause she knows what she's doing and we don't. But True. Just I, what's one, what's one insight about yourself that you have gleaned if you could if, you, if there's one that comes to mind if not cuz it's all big you know hairy she you know, the, one of the there. biggest things is she's been picking at um like f it, it came from first how people how no one has really known or seen me as I am as a as a creative and encouraged that it's always mm. been like a addendum or like an ornament that people mm. would see or comment on, but not as an intrinsic piece of me. She mm. has seen that. She first started working through the fact that that has been un, um, not acknowledged, but un, like appreciated, or maybe unacknowledged in me by other people. But also now she's been working into like I don't even know myself anymore. Mm. I don't see myself, and and what that looks like, and how to what are the things to work through, and. So that stuff's been really interesting for me because as a four, you normally don't. Enneagram. Yeah. Four. You don't normally like being seen or <laughs> like, you know, yeah. detailed or understood in that way. But she just said some things that kind of put me on my heels and I had to Oof. like go to the car and just sit and think about <laughs> for the drive home. Oof. Oh, man. Which is hard, but very, very good. Yeah. And very encouraging to feel like this person just kind of looks right into you and is like, this is who you are. I see you. And you're like, wow. Yeah. The eye of Sauron, mm -hmm. perhaps. Yeah. That is rough. One does not simply walk into mental <laughs> health. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's good. What about you? That's, that's good. I was hoping you wouldn't ask. <laughs> um, so, so, this the mode of therapy is um, designed to get in touch with emotions and what's happening in your body. Yeah, my my whole life has been spent sort of in my brain, 
uh, in my head. And um, the only thing I was told about what you do with your bodies is don't. Right. Um, and uh, so it's been interesting to go into desire, disappointment, pain. Like we start every session, he'll be like, so what do you want today? Mm. And I don't know, but and the yeah. question drives me nuts. Yeah. Like I get angry yeah. because I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> that's it, why that's you're here. your job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you tell me. <laughs> and he just won't. And it's all about, well, what do you want? What mm. do you? And I don't know. It's that same like, yeah. like there's this whole um, cavern of stuff I've just never been in touch with. Yeah. But it's been in touch with me because it's been driving right. so much behavior. So he has this, he has this kind of shorthand way of talking about how we use, you know, different coping mechanisms. And he's like, the the point of all the coping mechanisms are either to fill, try to fill the hole, or to not feel the hole. Ooh. And and that fill it or not feel it line yeah. has had great explanatory power. Stuff to fill in, the hole or to not feel the hole. That's right. Yeah. So he was like anger. Yeah, anger. You're. So let's say you're lonely, and which is easier, to be in touch with your loneliness and feel responsible for what you do in your loneliness, or to be angry at somebody else because you're right, lonely? Totally. Right? So that, so, and, and then, and then, um, all of that gets packed into a relationship with God, and this is where I've been like, oh my goodness, like, all of this stuff that I do to either fill the hole of God's, you know, distance or to not feel the hole of God's distance. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like we were raised to believe that you're just supposed to feel close to God all the time. Yes. It's been very damaging. I, yeah. <laughs> yes. Totally. So anyway, I mean, it's just, it's awful. It's horrible, Tim. <laughs> and you should all do it. Oh, only, only when you're ready, because my goodness. Anyway, I just thought we'd, we'd do a quick segment called Two Middle-Aged White Guys in Therapy. So, I like it. Because <laughs> one of my favorite memes just floating around you know, the interwebs is, you know, dudes would rather go explore the Titanic in a, in a crappy submarine than go to therapy. Yeah. Like whatever, dudes would rather X, Y, and Z than go to therapy. Well, was Gombas' thing, the billboard is like... 90% of men die from stubbornness or yes. something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, anyway, there you go. That's a new segment. Anyway, we're glad you're with us. Hello, Voxology community. It's so funny, bro. I actually forget that we're recording sometimes. Wait, me too. And I wonder if people are like, let's fast forward this part. Um, we got some great um, feedback on social media that that – doggone it has said it's actually worth engaging some nonsense out there so thank you um i also want to say thank you to uh i i need to be more regular about this but I need more uh, fiber some folks yeah dude <laughs> i need to metamucil this bro lydia and clint and amy and andrew and elizabeth and aaron and julie and bob and brody wow Thank you all for supporting us through Patreon. And there's a whole community that also supports us through tithe.ly. 
But um, again, I know, I know, I know, but it's such an encouragement when you're you're doing work and people see value in it. Yeah. And so thank you for your generosity and thank you for allowing us to do, like we had a, a Patreon dinner in Southern California. We did this uh, non-ference, we're going to call it, <laughs> instead of conference, it was a non-ference. Like things like this are like allow us to do different stuff. And so thank you very much, all of you. Um, we're going to dive back into uh, Revelation, uh, post-Gombus, <laughs> post-Gombus hangover, so great. Post-powers um, and principalities. Yes, well, <clears throat> I mean, boom. So so we're, we're looking at the seven churches, um, or the seven oracles to the churches, is actually how we should understand that. And, and, and we're making the case that what gets said in these oracles is what gets worked out in the rest of the letter. So what dispen our dispensationalist friends sometimes do is they separate the letters from the rest of the book. Mm. The letters were past and the rest of the book is future. And that is, that is a complete, not a complete, I'm exaggerating, that is a failure of um, <laughs> hermeneutics, I would say, because um, what you get this picture of Christ in, in chapter one, and that gets filtered in to the, the churches, um, and then you get all of these promises to the churches um, that get worked out in the rest of the, the book. And, and certainly... Um, some would be considered future, but remember, we're not operating on a linear timeline in Revelation. We're doing something completely different. And if that's new, go back and listen to the 87 episodes we did on the background of the book. Hallelujah. So we're going to look at two uh, churches today, and they share something in common, and that's why I'm grouping them together. To the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now, Pergamum. these were seven real churches in Asia Minor. We know there are more than seven because two others are referenced in the New Testament, at least. So we know the seven is symbolic. So the fact that the number seven is symbolic doesn't mean that these weren't real flesh and blood churches, and right. they, they were. And so Jesus stands among them, and, and these are very stylized words he's giving these churches. They're stylized... According to one theologian, um, uh, in the in the pattern of imperial edicts, um, but they all follow a similar pattern, so on, so on, so on. So we met the church in Ephesus. Now the the only city that kind of had more sway than Ephesus was Pergamum. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now. The double-edged sword is a picture that comes from Isaiah, Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 49. And there is, we're going to encounter in this letter and the next, like, violent imagery. The thing that Revelation, that, that is so confusing, but it makes sense when we get there, is that Revelation uses holy war, violent language held next to the war that is fought by the lamb who was slain. And so, so on the one hand, you have um, swords 
and riders on white horses, but the robe is dipped in blood. And as we'll see, the blood was on Jesus before the battle started. So it's his own blood. So it's the slain lamb. So the lamb conquers and wins the war by being martyred and the army that accompanies the lamb is the martyred people. And so it, it's this, it just messes, messes with um, all of the holy war imagery that's used. So it subverts it. So a double-edged sword is going to be important here in a second, but it's an Old Testament image that's reintroduced here. So he says, these are the words of him who has this sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, Pergamum, where Satan has his throne. Oh, now, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> let's talk about Satan's throne, because there are some people that think it's a reference to the synagogue in Pergamum. And, and, and one of the things we have to realize is that when Paul and the apostles went out preaching the gospel, they went first to synagogues. So they would preach to Jews, and those Jews who said yes to Jesus would then form churches. Mm. So any place like in Ephesus where there was a large Jewish population, you would often have several house churches in the area. Um, the Jews, uh, not the Jews generally, but, but in a lot of places, there, there was animosity be, between the Jews that had accepted Jesus as Messiah and the Jews who did not. And one of the occasions for the animosity was that the Jews who'd accepted Jesus as Messiah were now fellowshipping with Gentiles mm -hmm. who'd accepted Jesus as Messiah. So it's not surprising that in the cities of Asia Minor, where there were large Jewish populations, there was tension yeah. between the Messianic, the Jesus-following Jewish people and the non-Jesus-following Jewish people. And so some think, some of the references, like we'll read about a synagogue of Satan, um, which is the idea that, the, that the, the Jews were now beginning to differentiate themselves from the, the Jesus followers in a way that gave Rome the opportunity to persecute them. Oh. Because as long as right. Christianity, fledgling Christianity, was considered a subset of Judaism, they were safe okay, from yeah. certain... Things, but now the, the there there seem to be at least in the letter some hints that the the local Jewish synagogues were beginning to say these guys aren't with us, right. and that then opened the Christians up to different kinds of persecution. So some think that um, the Satan has his throne is a reference to Jewish animosity in the region. I do not think that is at all what is being referenced here. Because when you go back and study ancient Pergamum, they had a massive Acropolis that dominated the city. And at the top of that Acropolis was a humongous altar to Zeus in the shape of a throne. And inscribed you know, into the throne were words like Savior. Um, and, uh, and, and, and not only that, but there was a, like, a, a, like Aphrodite was there and Dionysius like this, there was this whole like massive dominating hillside full of, uh, idols to pagan gods. And so I'm with a lot of scholars that think that the throne, because he uses where Satan has his throne, is a reference to the throne shape of this humongous altar of Zeus. 
or and or to a reference to the fact that all the pagan deities, including the emperor, were worshipped in this one big Acropolis area. Yeah. So so, and and when when John, you know, when Jesus through John says, "Hey, I want you to understand that behind these idols sit this Satan figure," um, like that that is, you know, we hear that. Uh, 2,000 years later, and we're like, yeah, yeah, Satan, blah, 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 blah. But that was a way that Revelation functions to kind of unmask what we thought was beautiful and lovely and secure and provided stability, right? The, the, the fortune of the gods was actually blasphemous and demonic. And so, like, this isn't just a rhetorical device that John's using. Hey, this is where Satan has his throne. But he's also he's also serving an apocalyptic function and unmasking what's sitting behind uh, the Greco-Roman pantheon. Which so is that kind of like is, with the powers and principalities from last week? The yes, these things that were influencing not not just running around with pitchforks and they were doing yes. something that looked like it was good, but it was steering in a way that was not. Yes, the I don't know that the Gentiles would have had a very sophisticated view, right? of what Gombus was articulating. It would have been news to them that the gods don't live in temples made by human hands and they're not served by human hands as if they needed anything, right? That's Paul's speech in Acts 17. Um, it would have been news to them that sitting behind the worship of these so-called gods and the worship of the emperor was actually a, um, a very dark power that stood opposed to God's purposes in the world. So I don't know how much beyond that they would have been able to articulate. We know when Paul is dealing with meat sacrificed to idols in Corinth, one of the things that the people who are eating the meat sacrificed to idols keep saying is, hey, we know that we know that idols aren't anything at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there's only one God. And Paul actually kind of chastens them in some ways that will become relevant in a bit. So, um, so, so where Satan has his throne is kind of where we left off. Yet, you, church, remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, or Antipas, my faithful witness who is put to death in your city where Satan lives. So Antipas, the, the, the Greek here reads as if it were this death sentence were carried out in a legal setting. The idea that my faithful witness, that's, that's used in Revelation to describe Jesus's um, guilty verdict in front of the pagan courts. Um, he was put to death in your city. He did not renounce your faith in me. Like all of that seems to indicate this was some sort of legal proceeding. Mm. And what John, what Jesus sees in Antipas is the future of what's coming. In the next 100 years, that's going to be much more common. So even when he was martyred, you did not renounce your faith in me. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate what, Timothy? I'm not there yet. 
Oh, okay. Food sacrificed <laughs> to idols, and they committed sexual immorality. <clears throat> now, the joining of food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. That's going to be true of Balaam, this Balaam figure, the Nicolaitans that we met in Ephesus, and a Jezebel figure in the next letter. All right. So the two things that are repeated over and over and over in the churches that have compromised are that they're eating meat sacrificed to idols and they're committing pornea or fornication or sexual morality. And as we'll see, the big debate is, is that literal or is that, is that channeling the fact that the Old Testament often uses uh, sexual immorality as a figure or symbol of spiritual immorality? Mm -hmm. You know, that, you're, you, that they'll use a physical affair to um, symbolize a spiritual affair. But the thing that I, I want to just draw attention to is this is the first of two Old Testament examples. This is from Numbers of someone who tempts the Israelites to worship the false god Baal, the fertility god, and that led them to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to sexual immorality. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we met the Nicolaitans in Ephesus. The Nicolaitans, there are three different origin stories for the Nicolaitans. There's an ancient church father that says they were connected with a man named Nicholas from Acts 6. There is a, um, there's another view that looks at Nicolaitan and, and sees the, the Greek Nike part of that. When we talked about victory and overcoming, the right. Nicolaitans were trying to overcome the church of Jesus with their false teaching. Uh, and then there's a third view that, oh, uh, shoot. What was the third view? I had it. Dadgummit. I got to find it. I got to find it. Third view. So I really I'm shouldn't wear Nikes at this point because it's advocating for ah. overthrowing, the, overthrowing Jesus. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Reeboks Nicolaitan is a transliteration of an Aramaic word that means let us eat. Mm. And so the Nicolaitans were people who advocated eating meat sacrificed to idols. Literally. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we, we just meet Balaam. An Old Testament figure. So, so what, what John is doing, which is in the prophetic tradition, of course, is taking someone who is notoriously you know, evil and leading God's people into immorality and then using that like picture to describe the influence of these other groups. Totally. So here we meet Balaam and Balak, and you can read End of Numbers um, about that. Likewise, you also hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You have people there who do that. Repent, therefore... Remember, the, the, the churches are called to repent corporately. Yeah. It's not just a bunch of individuals being sorry for their sin. It's like the church is to change direction. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them, those false teachers, with the sword of my mouth. Now, again, the sword of my mouth lets us know that this is metaphorical language. But it's interesting, when, when the sword is used in those number stories as punishment for those who assimilate uh, to Baal worship because of, of Balaam and Balak. And so there is a, a callback there. It's, it's not random that sword is mentioned twice and Balaam is mentioned because if you go back and read that whole episode, the sword was used to kind of punish the people that um, uh, were idolatrous. 
Um, then he says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is straight from the mouth of Jesus in the Gospels. To the one who is victorious. And remember, victorious is the one who conquers, and conquering in Revelation is much different than conquering the way the Romans taught. I will give some of the hidden manna. There is an, an apocryphal story in, man, 2nd or 3rd Maccabees, where the, the city of Jerusalem was about ready to fall, and the, the Ark of the Covenant is taken away before Indiana Jones finds it. Right. And, um, we even talk about that. and it's hidden. And one of the things that we know from earlier in the story is that, that, that manna, the last remaining manna, was um, put into the ark. And so hidden manna seems maybe to be a reference to that apocryphal story that the, the covenant of God will be renewed in a very dramatic sort of way and everything will be uncovered and brought back. Mm. Um, so perhaps. So remember, I, I commend you for this. Then he says, I have this against you. To the one who overcomes, the one who resists these forces of assimilation, he says, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone. Now, a white stone here had um, significance. White in the Roman Empire had was very a, a very powerful symbolic color of purity or, or righteousness. Um, a stone, and I only read this in one scholar's uh, take, so I don't know how true it is. I like to see, you know, three or four right. different scholars reference something. But he was talking about how uh, in the Roman Empire at that time, you could be black stoned, uh, which means it would it would be a negative mark against your reputation. Similar, and forgive the euphemism here, but being blackballed. Right. Um, uh, so a white stone would be an indication of favor, whereas a black stone was an indication of disfavor. And that stone uh, would have you would get hidden manna, a stone, and it would be, there would be a new name written on it, and that seems to be a reference to the Isaiah passage of Yahweh's. So there's like an idea name. of, I mean, the connotation with manna, just with provision and secret provision or secret gifts or secret. Um, I don't. Good question. I don't know. The, there, the the interplay between eating the food sacrificed to idols versus eating the hidden manna yeah. could be what's right. What's at play here. I'm not, I don't know. I don't know. So that and then what um, was the second one? Um, so there was hidden manna, a white stone, white stone. and a new name written The white stone meaning it. glory because no. the black stone was a mark against you. So this was a yeah, more Yeah, more like vindication or favor. Okay. Um, and the new name, I think is a reference to the, to the name above every name. That you know that Philippians passage quotes. Oh, what was it? Dang, I'm slipping. Um, I think it was a Jeremiah text that talked about the name above every name that was given Yahweh. Now is given to this Jesus. But anyway, so um, so that's the church in Pergamum. The church in Pergamum they'd resisted assimilation in the days of the martyr, but now some among them were following the teachings of this Old Testament figure um, who was you know. In a, in a very different way, saying we should, you know, capitulate to the culture around us and the Nicolaitans. All right. Now we get we now we meet a um, a new false teacher. <laughs> this is the to the angel of the church of Thyatira. Right. 
These are the words of the Son of God. This is from Daniel, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. That's all Daniel stuff that we met in chapter one. Yeah. I know your deeds. And again, it's, it's always interesting. He's not saying, I know your beliefs or your credo statements. He's done. always saying, I know what you do. <clears throat> I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Now, remember, this is the opposite of what Jesus said to the Ephesians, who said, I wish you would do <laughs> what you did at first now, but you haven't. To, to this church, he says, you're actually doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate <laughs> that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. Now, Jezebel, of course, very famously is... Um, the wife of the wicked King Ahab in the Old Testament, who leads the people of Israel to the worship of the false god Baal and uh, eating meat and sexual immorality are the characteristics of that. Um, it's interesting. She calls herself a prophet. Now notice he doesn't object to her being a female in the role of a prophet because they had female prophets. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that she's, she is a false prophet. That's an issue. It's not that she's a woman prophet. I just, again, just little, these are little subtle hints yeah. of how widely women were gifted and um, kind of seen in the early church. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, her name wasn't Jezebel in the same way that the false teachers weren't named, you know, Balaam right. um, in the previous <clears throat> Letter. These are Old Testament types of immorality that are, you know, being channeled. Um, she calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into what? Sexual morality and eating food <laughs> sacrificed to idols. Right? Do you see like a theme? That. This is bad. Do you see a theme? <laughs> right? Three times the Nicolaitans, Balaam, and now Jezebel. They all, and it's this issue. And again, Food sacrifice to idols could, could literally lead to pornea, which is the fornication with temple prostitutes, or at these dinner parties or guild parties, there was a lot of immorality that would go on there too. And, or it could also just be in a general reference to committing adultery with a false god, yeah. like worshiping a false god. So I tend to think it's both because particularly in the Balaam story, the, the Israelite, once they worshiped Baal, they took, they took wives that were um, outside of Israel and the Midianite wives and had um, unsan unsanctioned union with them. So all that is to say, um, she misleads my servants into sexual morality and eating food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Now, here we know that committing adultery right. isn't literally committing adultery. It's the spiritual adultery yeah. that we're talking about. So not only she will suffer, but those who participate in uh, the idolatry will suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Now, her children isn't her literal children, but it's a reference to her followers. Yeah. I will strike them dead. It's interesting here because there is a bit of hyperbole um, 
at play because he literally just said, I will, I will cause them to suffer until they repent. Um, and striking dead, I'm not sure that means like unable to repent anymore. I think we're talking hyperbolically about um, like war language, the same, like the sword thing, same oh, thing. Yeah. <clears throat> um, this is a pattern in Revelation that we're going to see. There's lots of holy war language that is then executed by a slain lamb. So that's the, yeah, because we get like, oh, we will strike her children dead. I think he's saying doom awaits her and her followers. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. In other words, I'm not going to let the church be infected by all of this. Uh, I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Man, this is so over all over Revelation. And it really makes Protestants uncomfortable who say that all you have to do is accept Jesus yeah. into your heart and then you're good. There are all of the there there are judgments all over the place about our deeds. So we just have to kind of broaden as we have yeah. in previous episodes our understanding of what it means to kind of believe. Now I say to the rest of you, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. So in other words, there is this prominent false prophet. Her devotees, and, and they, they will, and again, the suffering, I don't know if that just means I will oppose them or literally I will cast them on a bed of suffering, I'm not sure. Um, but to the rest of you, I have nothing else to say except stay true, yeah. so hold on. Um, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Now this is from Psalm chapter 2. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. That's, that is, that is um, a messianic psalm that talks about giving the Son of Man in that case, it's literally the Son of God, um, authority to rule over the nations. Um, so the idea is you will be enthroned with the Son of God over the nations, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Now, the morning star in Roman cosmology is Venus. Okay. And Venus was a deity who played a great uh, who had a great deal of importance in the Caesar cult? Not the not all of the not all of the um, imperial lines and descendants um, used Venus, but but Julius did, and there was a, a cult to Julius and Roma at um, uh, the city, I believe. And the idea that I will give you the morning star is just another way of saying Caesar doesn't hold one. Mm. Cedars doesn't have one. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, here's just a like a shot. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, is this making sense? Yeah. Or is this way too choppy? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, I got more. So, Balaam incited Midianite women to lure Israelites into the worship of Baal. And that's in Numbers 25 and 31. Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, was instrumental in turning Israel to ball worship, 1 Kings 16. And the Nicolaitans, as we've seen, 
um, our best understanding of them is that they tempted Israel into the same thing. Now, let's talk about meat sacrifice to idols for a second. Let's. Odds are uh, that, let's take Jezebel teaching about meat sacrifice to idols. Odds are these people weren't being spiritually faithless, but they were just being very practical. And um, because... One of the ways to participate in the economy of Asia Minor is that you would be a part of guilds or trade associations, similar to labor unions. But these were far more important in ancient culture because there weren't protections for workers except through guilds. And there were, as you would imagine, all sorts of you know, abuses to this system. But by and large, they served a very important economic function. And what you would do at guild meetings, evidently, is that you would uh, sacrifice um, meat uh, and offer it to whatever the god was or the gods of your guild or association. And then that the rest of the meat, you would sac- give a portion of it to the idol. And the rest of the meat would then be given uh, out and shared as a common meal. And, um, and then sometimes those association meetings got a little wild and you would bring in dancers and, you know, inappropriate things would follow. Um, so eating idols, eating idol meat uh, was tempting for people whose vocations um, were, you know, and, and these were people who would be middle class and lower. Yeah. Um, whose vocations depended upon guild associations for employment. And so, well, well, of course, why wouldn't you go? Because we all know that's not real. So why wouldn't you just go and cross your fingers behind your back and eat some of this meat and do whatever the trade associations do? Because that's how you participated economically. That was like your job and your livelihood. Maybe not for everybody, but certainly at public festivals, uh, uh, public celebrations. I mean, so much of the worship of these gods was tied to the health of the city of which you were a part. You kept the gods happy and they blessed your city. And so it'd be like somebody, um, uh, like being at a 4th of July party dressed in all black, um, you know, turning their back on fireworks displays um, and talking crap about America all day. You know what I mean? You would just look at that person and be like, hey, you know, what's up? But even more so back then because they they would be risking offending the gods if they were not totally. participating into this. So there was tons of social pressure to just play along. Um, and And evidently, the Jezebel figure, the Balaam figure, and the Nicolaitans were all saying, hey, this really isn't, in some way, shape, or form, this really isn't a huge deal. Yeah. And maybe Jezebel was just being practical, like, dang, well, guys. Like echoes I mean, of the garden with like the, hey, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Like this is, you're just kind of opening up to some broader things. and Right. And, and, um, and, and here you are. You don't know that Christianity is true, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe you had, you, you heard from an apostle or the disciple of an apostle. You had an experience where the Holy Spirit filled you and enabled you with some empowerment that now, you know, and you would gather together with 12 or 15 other people. And maybe there would be one or two people there of high status and reputation or wealth, but the rest of you were just sort of 
the common, many of you would be slaves or a part of households where you had no power. You were every way, shape, and form marginalized. Uh, the Jews, if you were Jewish, the synagogue you came from would not it welcome you any longer. Right. Um, and you still carried whatever stigmas the Gentiles had of you as, as somebody who was Jewish. Uh, if you were coming from Gentile perspectives, um, you still weren't sure if you had to become Jewish first. You're all sitting at the outskirts of the most powerful civilization and the most prosperous civilization that has ever, ever hit the planet. And it makes total sense that you would sit there and go, okay, we've given our lives to Jesus. We have our love feasts here. What's wrong with having a feast in honor of Zeus? Right. Right? Particularly when the trade associations and the public and civil ceremonies, I mean, all of those things fostered good business and right. relationship the with the rest the of the city. The reverberations seem positive. You're not seeing like Absolutely. all of your livestock killed by, you know, <laughs> disease or something like yeah, right. And and we've said ever I think every episode so far about the churches. It's it's not that that the the Christians worship Jesus. It's that they worship Jesus alone, right? Uh, and used language that was only appropriate for the emperor and applied that to Jesus. That was the issue. No wonder they didn't like him. Yeah, I mean it makes sense. And and we have no way to relate to what it must have been like to be on the absolute margins. Yeah. Of of this, I mean, like violently, like so. what's that? Like violently, so just like yes, they were completely vulnerable. None of the strictures of Roman society were there for them once they said yes to Jesus publicly. That's why the church they they, they keep telling us about the early church. They fed each other. Yeah, they gave money to each other. They raised income for play other places where it was poor because there was literally nobody else to take care of yeah. them. Yeah. Right? I mean, so so in that environment where, where particularly as we look at Domitian in a couple of episodes, where Roman, the, the, the imperial cult was, was like approaching its zenith in terms of power and influence and audacity. And, um, and you're in this marginalized sect and and terrified to go public, um, my lord. I mean, it would make total sense that you would want to go as far as possible into Roman culture and say yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's self-preservation. Yeah. Now I want to paint it that dramatically because, I mean, the natural questions that are on our horizon are, well, what is eating meat sacrificed to idols in Pornia today? Yeah, right. Because um, that's, that's the role that Revelation plays, is it, is it forces us to do two things. It forces us to unmask the propaganda and illusion of our day, and then to ask, where are we participating yeah. um, in ways that just make life easier, um, but, but are actually betraying our identity as this body of Jesus. Yeah, that's big. That That is absolutely well, big. I, well, because it requires work, whereas, as you've that, established, bro. this whole thing, this book has been taken out of context because it's easier to read it literally and just be like, hey, guys, bad news. Yeah, yeah. This is well, it, yeah it, there's no curiosity. Listen, the rapture's going to come. You're either part of it or you're not. And the good guys, I mean, the, you don't have to discern anything Nothing. in culture. Culture is yep. bad. <laughs> 
And so I, I want us to have a, lots of sympathy yeah. for these early Christians and to say, I don't know, I don't know, maybe Jezebel, this Jezebel figure was totally wicked. Um, or maybe Jezebel was just practical. And um, I don't know, but I can certainly understand the temptation to have said yes to eating meat sacrificed to idols and totally uh, whatever the sexual immorality is here, right? whether it was literal or not. Man, we used to work with this uh, missionary in Guatemala, and she, every time she would come visit here, she was always like, I don't know how you guys can be Christians in this country. Like, everything is so easy, and there's so much distractions, and there's so much, like, mm. just ease built into the society. And she's like, we are, like, clinging to Jesus to try to live. Yep. And so That's it's right. interesting when you think about that, because we are creatures of comfort and acceptance. You know, it's a human, mm -hmm. a human trait to want to be accepted and Absolutely. loved and seen in part and not ostracized. So, yeah, yeah. it is you want to have a lot of sympathy because we're not all the, how no matter how we spin it these days with we're so um, targeted and we're so, you know, mm -hmm. yep. afflicted and we're, which we're not. Uh, mm -hmm. to read that onto this with no discernment, yeah. we immediately were just like, yeah, totally, man. We're in the same well, boat. Because, it, yeah. It's because idolatry <clears throat> is so, I think in some ways more subtle here. Uh, I mean, we're not. Yeah, yeah totally. And that's what your, your missionary friend is commenting totally. on. Like it's suffocating. So, so what I want to do is I want to say, okay, look what Jesus is doing with the churches. Now, again, it's very stylized. Um, but he's, he's looking at the churches and he's evaluating them by, uh, their assimilation levels. We're going to meet a church in, um, a couple of episodes that is poor and Jesus's word to them is yet you are rich. Mm. Um, <laughs> and then we're going to meet a church that is rich and his word to them is, I'm knocking at the freaking door and you better let me in because I'm not in there right now. Mm. Like, whoa. So the the idols then and the idols now are are the same. Yeah. Money, sex, and power. Yeah. And, and all of the iterations of those things. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was to use the language and the lenses of the seven oracles to look at the idols of... Uh, of what are, what some of the potential idols are for us. For us, yeah. Um, for me, not just us out there, but for me. And so um, next episode, I want to look at the idol. And, and, and the best way to find out what your idols are, at least in the tribe of which you are a part, is to find out what you're allowed to question mm. and what you're not allowed to question. Um, and so I... Um, the next episode I want to look at, because Rome had a very public story that Revelation called into question, I want to look at America's public story and see what bits of it Revelation may call into question. Um, is, is the quest for power <laughs> infecting my church now political power tied to a certain view of America? Totally. And, um, and the fact that I feel like I have to give about a thousand disclaimers before I can have that conversation seems to suggest that maybe, <laughs> maybe um, 
we should be paying attention to the the the, the story. I want to look at sexuality, yeah. and I want to look at the assumptions that undergird are talking about sexuality, whether you're conservative or whether you're progressive. There are there are shared assumptions that I I, I think Revelation would call into question. And I, I'm less interested in, well, what about this act or this orientation or this gender thing? Mm-hmm. And more about calling into the calling into question the assumptions that go into all those questions. Right. Um, I think that's where Jesus, I mean, I don't think Jesus answers the question, should you be a Republican or Democrat? I think Jesus confronts the assumptions that lead us to those being the only two options. Yeah, he's always answering two-dimensional questions with three-dimensional answers. Boom. Exactly. So we're going to look at power uh, politically. We're going to look at um, sexuality. Um in some of the assumptions about what it is to be human. And then we're going to look at money um, in the way that the New Testament reconfigures poverty and riches. Yeah. And and we're doing this through Revelation. This isn't, like, this is how Revelation is relevant. It's not that these are eras of church history. It's that you can't read this and not look up and go, oh, and so I would want to be asking money, sex, and power questions if I lived in the Sudan, or if I lived in Nepal, right. or if I was a part of the Chinese church, right? This isn't about America. It's just where we live right. that we have to ask the questions. <laughs> so if I'm a missionary in Guatemala, right. I'm asking about Guatemala, yeah. right? If I'm in sub-Saharan Africa, I'm asking well, there's about the sub-Saharan Africa. nature of that response or whatever is just that the discernment requires you to not take everything in two-dimensional fashion. That's it. it. And then be like, oh, well. If revelation is to serve its function, it has to unveil. So in one sense, it unveils Jesus, right? And we're already beginning to see that. But in another sense, it also unveils the narratives that can compromise the church. And obviously, I mean, these are just three easy ones that are super sophisticated, but they're the things that the church is warring over right now. Totally. Political power, right? You don't Health need much more than those things. We as humans, as we have evolved and as technology has evolved and as commerce has evolved and as we've grown in population, these things, while they're rooted in the same thing, they've metamorphosed, like they've changed over time that we have yeah. to, in our time, really look at it and say, I don't know, it yeah. just requires so much more than just this cut and paste. That's it. It's like they didn't have and Amazon.com back then and everything you could ever want at your fingertips. <laughs> well, you know, that's a like a jokey example, yeah. but it, it gives like no. there's nuance to being able to parse out how do I fit into this or how do I, right? you know. Because here's what you're saying, Tim, and I love it. So for far too long, we... Um, have viewed the lens, we've looked at the Bible through the lens of Western culture. Yes, 100%. Now we want to look at Western culture through the lens of the Bible. And I know that sounds super cliche and cute and pithy. No, but we've built on the first version. We've built our houses on that. But that, that is deconstruction. Yeah. In its its healthiest sense. It's going... Okay, how does a culture of hyper-individualism, a culture of unprecedented affluence and access to goods and services and leisure time, 
and culture <coughs> that either has um, so shamed and stigmatized sex or has moved to the other extreme and said it's actually not real and it's not important, but yet it's everywhere. Right. <laughs> how, do, how do we be faithful into that culture? Revelation is designed to give us a set of lenses, and, and it's the whole, it's not just Revelation, it's the whole text of Scripture, but Revelation, you can't, I, I, I can't read the oracles and not say, okay, if Jesus were writing to my church, right. um, what would he be saying? And I, I, I don't think he would speak to my church in the way that he spoke to those. I think the stylized versions um, held certain symbolic power uh, that they might not today. Yeah, this letter would be confusing. But they would be totally <laughs> confusing. Hey, I hold. I will give you the Morning Star. We'd be like, sweet Morning Star sausage. Oh, yeah. At that point, I'd be all in. If that's the hidden manna, I'm all in. <laughs> it's just tons of sausage. <laughs> so, as we over the next three episodes, as we use and bounce around in the oracles to say okay money sex and power let's just let's just ask questions we're not going to arrive at anything but part of the 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 easy labeling of simplistic evangelicalism that's not what's required here yeah. um is it sacred or secular is it christian or non-christian mm -hmm. is it uh, um is it religious or irreligious you're just like those aren't the categories right. you know totally. it's not so let's. So I just want to practice. Yeah. No, I love that. And um, and so we'll do money, sex, power, but we'll do it kind of through the text a little bit, and just sort of see where. And I don't even know where this will go, but but we're trying to cultivate four um, practices that are um, all over the Book of Revelation that help discern. Yeah. So the first one is attentive listening and discerning engagement. So this is the hardest. Yeah. Revelation invites us to think that the story we're told isn't always the true story. Not in, in some conspiracy theory way, because there, is, there are a lot of Christians. Like I, I just found out from my next door neighbor that mosquitoes have been engineered to give us a virus <laughs> that makes us not want to eat meat because Bill Gates um, owns Impossible Burger. Yeah. And I first thought, I first thought this person was kidding, and so I was like, "Yeah, dude, I gotta watch Bill. I'm not kept up with Bill Gates's shenanigans." And this person was not kidding. Right. Um, I don't mean <laughs> apocalyptic literature can be taken that way. Like, oh, here's just another. Here's like the QAnon of all QAnons, right? Revelation. That's why we get a lot of interest in the book. Is it's the conspiracy theory. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about are the stories embedded in what's called normal in American culture, right. or Ugandan culture, or Swedish culture, right? The church at all times, at all places, is to engage in this attentive listening and discernment engagement. And that's all, or discerning engagement. That's always been true yeah, of the that's church. So, that's so, that's just huge. Because that example with the mosquitoes, comically but it is true like there is an amount of discernment that needs to be taken into and the yeah. church not the whole church but a lot of the church has been swallowed up by things like QAnon, and it which which the which martyr syndrome yep. and which blinds us to, to 
the actual Which the actual genius. things that are happening. That makes so much it sense is. with the false prophet or with the with the um, powers right. as influencers or whatever. It's like just give them a little nugget that puts them on a little bit of a stray course. Boom, done here. What's next? Like, <laughs> yep, exactly <clears throat> right. So a lot of revelation can be used to feed conspiracy theory. Totally. You know, but I imagine most of the Bible, maybe specifically revelation, but we've seen a lot of the Bible be used, perverted to do. All that sorts same of things. Thing. You bet. You bet. I can do all things. So, so we're going to practice attentive listening and discerning engagement. I like that. The second thing is in response, we then want to practice faithful witness and resistance. Mm. Nowhere is re- are the churches in Revelation uh, invited to be militant or indi- invited to seek power yeah. or invited to engage in culture war. Uh-oh. They are, they are invited to inhabit and embody dynamics that um, embody the faithful witness of Jesus. Yeah. So like nonviolent love and um, humility and forgiveness of enemies and willingness to be marginalized um, are all things that you see all over the place. I like the word embody um, too versus like just profess. Yes. One of the things that Revelation is going to call us to, which as Americans we're really going to struggle with, or at least I am, is it is a Revelation puts doxology at the center of the battle. So there are there are seven pieces of doxology of worship mm. that are parody of the worship around us. So one scholar invites us into he calls it liturgical patterns of life. And remember, worship in the... Oh, Hannah just said, I'm taking forever. Thank you, Hannah. The people need us. <laughs> so, I thought you said she however was long it she's takes. Forever. No, no, she's saying in, in the Hannah font, which you do not need full words, capitals, or punctuation. You are, the letters, you are taking forever. So... <laughs> There you go. If you want to know what the life, what life is like, is a highly respected <laughs> a prophet podcast professional. There it what is. What is it about your prophet in your own home? Yes. Oh, it's so good. So, so like literally, the next thing we're going to be doing after the seven oracles is there's this big throne room scene for two chapters. Oh yeah. That is all about doxology. And I'm so curious about and, that. I've used that section, I know, out of context in church settings and like the, are you talking about like the, on the too. throne with the diamonds and the... Totally. Yeah. Me too. But but what Revelation paints is the antidote to the false stories yeah. is this liturgical like recitation and, and pattern living of the true story. And um, and so there's a lot to explore there. So the negative side is that we we practice faithful witness and resistance. The positive side is that we embrace liturgical forms mm-hmm. of living, which lead then into the cultivation, fourthly, of the missional hope of new creation. Yeah, that's interesting. That the only way we're able to allow ourselves to be marginalized or to forgive people or to love our enemies and not get even with them, the only way we can capably do that as human persons is to believe that the 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 false 
um, promise of prominence or status or vengeance or vindication um, is uh, hollow and will be replaced by something far beg- bet- better. Big- I was going to try to say bigger and better. <laughs> Bigter? Uh, far bigger and better and more wonderful uh, that we call new creation. Yeah. And so... So we have to be, these in these church communities, we have to be discerningly engaged and attentively listening. Yeah. And that calls us to faithful witness and resistance to the parts of culture that invite us out of new creation dynamics. Yeah, because you're plugged in at the base level hope. to the right thing. So then those things are natural. I would imagine yep. our natural uh, progressions from there. That's right. And central. Yeah. Absolutely central to... The new creation um, uh, people, besides hope, is this dox, like a doxological way of living. Yeah, I'm really curious so, to get to those. Yes. So that's that's our grid um, for engaging stories on money, sex, and power through the yeah. oracles. You know what I was thinking about when you were talking about the church um, was I just had a long conversation with a, a friend, a good, really good friend of mine that's in AA. And what AA has offered him in his understanding of what church is. Mm. And because when you think about it, like a lot of those things that you listed, like um, there's public shame to admitting that you're an alcoholic or an addict to anything. There's a, there's amount Mm. of public shame that comes with that. So there's a fear of um, acknowledgement or a fear of um, taking on that title. And then yeah. you come into this community that's literally built on if you fall, we all stop and pick you up. If I fall, yeah. you all stop and pick me up. And and and, right. and that's a shared understanding. And then inside of that, there's a parsing out of identity that's from weakness first. And then there's all of these steps that go forward of how you reconcile community around you. So it's just really interesting. While you were going through all that letter, that the AA just kept ringing in my head like mm-hmm, over and over again, mm-hmm. just how that structure is built to edify and reorient people totally. who, who society that's has right. said no thanks. That's right. That's good. And that's why when you experience AA, as one of my friends at church says, um, he said, we're the kind of people that are always welcome in the church basements, but never in the front doors. Right? Yeah. And I was like, dang. Which has a lot oh. of, yeah, that is a great metaphor. And there's a, not even a metaphor. It's a great <laughs> truth. Image. But, um, yeah. 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 So, Tim, we got our work cut out, buddy. Mm-hmm. It's exciting, though. Yeah. It's very relevant. And revelatory. Well, that's, that'd be a great name for a magazine. <laughs> Relevant and revelatory. I I just, I mean, I've gone through this book a couple of times, and every time through it, it just is more and more um, powerful. Well, that kind of makes me. sense to the overall idea, too, of just, I mean, it's a revelation. So how is it, what is it? revealing to us with discernment now versus you know what i mean so it would make sense that this book continues to reveal as it is uh re-examined over time yeah 
Yes. And then that's where it's missing the mark in the first place is that we, like I was joking with the Amazon thing, but we're in such a different place. And while the root issues may be the same, the way in which we engage those has evolved over time. And so it requires a discernment to pick apart how, where am I in this? And how does this speak to me? And I imagine even if with you, if you read it five years ago, and then now that things have changed oh. enough that they're, it's going to reveal new things. It just shows the organic nature of our faith or our identity as Christians that yeah. we have to be, it just doesn't, there's no finish line. That's there's right. always, so it's always a pursuit and growing and growing and growing, which is what I love about it. Yeah. All right, friends. Well, all right, Hannah. I don't want a revelation, I want a revolution. Other way around. I want a revolution, not a revelation. (laughs) You want a revolution, I want a revelation. (laughs) Okay, whatever it is. Until next time, friends. See ya. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on instagram at voxology thank you thank you thank you for walking the long road with us